welcome to the Cass Health Podcast, the show where we hope to connect our community with healthcare information that's relatable, understandable, and useful to your life, and where you get to know better the neighbors providing your care here. I'm your host, Carter Anderson, and in today's episode, we'll be taking the fear out of atrial fibrillation with cardiology provider Kristen Babb. Two quick disclaimers. First, the comments on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cass Health. Second, the information in this podcast is not intended to be construed as personal medical advice. Always consult your primary care provider with questions and concerns regarding your health. Welcome. Thank you for taking some time to chat with us today. We'll start with some quick get-to-know-you questions here. So, Kristen, where are you from? So, I am from Carroll County, just about an hour north of here. I grew up in a... um, a small farm right outside of Willie, Iowa, if you know where that is, population about 99. little tiny town there. I think I've seen it a couple times driving up through Carroll. Favorite sports team? You know, by marriage, I, I had to become a Denver Bronco fan. Ooh. So I would associate with that. But really in my house, it's whatever the opposing team is that my husband's cheering for is who my daughter and I cheer for. Gotcha. There you go. Um, do we have any pets at home? I do. I have a 16-year-old Bichon uh, named Archie. What is a what breed is a Bichon? Bichon's kind of like a poodle. It's poodle, bred okay. off that poodle brand, so it's a small white dog that has the really pretty black eyes, the dark black eyes. Cute. Um, but he's 16, so he's blind and deaf, and he keeps life interesting at home. <laughs> Very cool. If you're cooking dinner to impress, what are we making? Well, who are we impressing, adults or children? Let's do both, adults and then children, but what's your... If it's children, it's mac and cheese, and that's very easy. Know your audience, good job. Know your audience. If it's adults, then I have my husband cook, because I don't do as good of a job. That's knowing your audience and your resources, good job. Exactly. Favorite holiday? Mine would be Halloween. And here, that seems very unusual. I moved from Phoenix, you know, just uh, within the last two years, and people don't decorate as much for Halloween in this area as I expected. In my basement, I actually have more Halloween things than I do Christmas things. It's a little spookier in the desert than it is here. Are people more into it down there than we are up here? Or? Well, I think the weather's really nice in October, gotcha. so everybody's out for Halloween Kinda and goes costumes. All out. Gotcha. And, yes. We will never catch you doing what? Delivering heart-healthy meals to farmers during harvest. Is there a little backstory? I was going to say, I feel feel like this is a story here. It is. I tried this last harvest. I I had heard some feedback. My brother does a farming operation in Carroll. He um, has, you know, the family farm. And it was a busy harvest. My husband was helping them as well. And I took them out, something that I thought would be a healthier option. And one of them actually threw it out the window. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh, it's not pizza from Casey's or something like that. So they were they were not with it. They weren't with it. Oh my it. gosh. I thought it was pretty simple. It was Euros, you know. So oh, not you know, I thought not it was somewhere that, in between. It's not like but it's hummus or something like that. Right? I, I learned my lesson, so never again. That's driving in the car alone. What are we jamming out to? What's your like turn the radio all the way up? Mine is mainly country, radio country. Um and then if it's it's been a hard day and you really needed a jam, I would go with some old school M M&M. High school or childhood nickname? My dad used to call me Christy Lou. And so in high school, uh, and even sometimes now, I have a few cousins that will still use it. Next or dream travel destination? My dream travel destination would be Australia. I would like to make that happen sometime soon. Right. 
the only thing about that get, that gets me is like the flight time there. That's the only part that I'm like, man, that would take forever. I but know. Have, My family and I had this conversation over dinner where it might be one of those times you really have to save for a while for a first class ticket so you can sit in one of those pods. Right. Plenty of room and then like stay for like an extended period of time because you wouldn't yes. like even – I think even a week would be hard to get adjusted to the time change Agreed. I think you would so. need two weeks. If mm-hmm. you were going to travel that length, I would think two weeks. Right. Two. Maybe Do you three. think Cass would let me leave for two weeks? Uh, I don't know. I think so probably actually. We'll see. Okay. So, yeah. So we'll kind of tie into our heart health thing here. Favorite heart healthy food slash activity? Are you a fan of Euros? Is that what you brought them to the farmers <laughs> earlier? Or? No, just a silly story to tell. Gotcha. Um, you know, I'd go with the activity. It's just walking. Just an easy way to get, you know, heart healthy exercise in. It doesn't have to be anything high impact. Uh, when it's nice out, you'll catch me walking around the hospital here. Very simple. So, Kristen, what made you decide to get into medicine? You know, I don't really have a a solid, you know, uh, like epiphany moment that said I should work in medicine. I think I always knew I'd wanted to do something service-oriented. And when I was in college, I had, um, you know, met with advisors and the things we do to try to pick a profession. And the PA field was really emerging, and I just went with it. It was interesting and... um, just decided to go that path. Uh, so I went to PA school at ATSU in Mesa, Arizona, uh, and took my first job in Arizona as well. My last rotation during PA school was in cardiology, and I found it so interesting. You've got a whole plumbing perspective, and then you've got this electrical perspective. So uh, I took my first job in Scottsdale, and I graduated PA school early. I think I was 25. So I was having a lot of fun in that area uh, and building a ton of experience. So I spent my first 14 years in private practice, seeing a lot of volume, lots of atrial fibrillation and rhythm disorders, and then you know the plumbing side too, heart attack stents. So really have a really uh, broad background in cardiac care. The last two years before moving um, back to this area, I was in an academic center. So I was given the opportunity to work with a really highly specialized electrophysiology team. We did a lot of complex ablation. We had some of the best uh, electrophysiologists in the world that worked there building a program. So I was happy to be able to bring that to this area, that that wealth of knowledge and experience. Right. That's super awesome. We're super happy to have you here with us. What is atrial fibrillation or AFib? So atrial fibrillation is the most common rhythm abnormality. So, you know, it's not uncommon to see or hear about. And really, to to know what atrial fibrillation is, you have to understand the way the heart's electricity usually works. So generally, we get our electrical signal that makes our heart beat from our God-given pacemaker of our heart, what we call the sinus node. And the sinus node sends a signal, the top chambers beat, and then the bottom chambers beat. That's what we call a sinus rhythm. So the heart goes ba-beat, ba-beat, ba-beat. 
in atrial fibrillation, the upper chambers, they quiver and they become very irregular and erratic and usually very rapid. And so this causes what we call atrial fibrillation. So the heart is quivering. And in that, um, most people will feel palpitations. They'll feel um, maybe short of breath. Gotcha. Those are kind of a couple of the symptoms, overarching symptoms to kind of look out for there. Um, who is kind of at risk for AFib more than or certain factors that kind of would put other people at risk? Sure. So aging is your number one risk factor for atrial fibrillation. As we get older, we have more AFib. Nothing we can do about aging. Patients who have other cardiac conditions like heart failure or coronary disease, valve disorders are going to be more likely to have AFib. Then there's other risk factors like uh, inactivity and obesity, uh, alcohol use, diabetes. All of those things contribute as well. Some of those lifestyle factors kind of impact the risk for it as well. Yes, absolutely. So what are, we kind of mentioned a couple of them before, what are some of the symptoms of AFib? How would someone that is experiencing it kind of know that they have it? Most people will feel palpitations, and palpitations is defined as a rapid heart beating, or may, some may describe it as a fluttering or um, uh, flipping around in their chest. Now, this usually occurs very abruptly, so almost like somebody flips a switch and boom, the heart takes off, feels fast and irregular. Some people won't really feel those palpitations, but they'll feel out of breath, especially when they're trying to do something. So maybe they're trying to walk up a hill, maybe they're carrying a laundry basket, and they're feeling more fatigued and short of breath. In some cases, people will feel dizzy or lightheaded. And maybe surprisingly to some of you, uh, there's lots of patients who don't feel anything at all. Uh, So we call that asymptomatic atrial fibrillation, and that can occur 30 or 40% of the time. Are there different types of atrial fibrillation? Like can someone be in it all the time and then sometimes not? Yes, absolutely. So people who go in and out of atrial fibrillation, we call it paroxysmal AFib, and that means they flip into it. Maybe they're in it for a few minutes, maybe a few hours, a few days, and they flip back out of it. Uh, Other patients, they flip into it and they stay into it for long periods of time. We call that persistent atrial fibrillation. And some patients are just in it all of the time, and we call that permanent atrial fibrillation. Interestingly, if you look at how long somebody will live, you know, just overall, if they have AFib, whether they're in it just sometimes or not very often or in it all the time, they should live the same amount of time as long as they are protected from stroke with adequate blood thinning medication. Gotcha. That's interesting that the, it really doesn't have a huge impact on lifespan about what type of AFib that they have. Right. And really, with treating the atrial fibrillation, you're treating the symptoms. So if a patient feels better when they are in a normal rhythm, then you work really hard to keep them in that normal rhythm. If they really don't feel the atrial fibrillation much and they have a normal heart muscle strength and their heart rates are controlled, it's reasonable to accept the atrial fibrillation keep them on blood thinners, and continue to manage them that way. Wow. So for those patients that kind of have those asymptomatic things happen, how do they get diagnosed with AFib? Do they come in for something else and it's like, hey, we're kind of noticing these abnormalities with your heart as well? or 
Right. Yeah, good point. So, yes, a lot of times they'll find it on screening. You know, so make sure you're getting your annual screenings. You're having regular medical checkups. Uh, in more in the modern world now, sometimes people find it by their Apple Watch or, um, you know, other heart rhythm devices. Sometimes it's just that they have different symptoms. So maybe, again, it's a little bit of dizziness or a little bit out of breath. In my opinion, asymptomatic AFib is, you know, kind of a blessing in some ways because uh, although you want to make sure we make the diagnosis, you don't have to deal with the symptoms that sometimes can cause lifestyle issues from AFib. Right. With that, is AFib a life-threatening condition? I'm really glad you asked this question because I don't feel like as healthcare providers we do a very good job at telling you this. So no, atrial fibrillation is not an immediate life-threatening condition. So when you think about things that cause heart attacks and that cause sudden cardiac death, atrial fibrillation does not fall into that category. Now, I don't want to mislead you. Atrial fibrillation does increase the risk of stroke. And so it does need to be treated. It does need to be followed. And really, the medical therapy around atrial fibrillation is about preventing that complication of stroke. But if you have atrial fibrillation and you're, you know, already on some therapy and you go back into it, it's not a medical emergency, you know, unless you're feeling really poorly. So if you're feeling short of breath, if you're feeling really dizzy, if the heart rate is really out of control, then yes, you need to seek more immediate attention. But a lot of times atrial fibrillation can be managed in the clinic um, and with just less pain. So kind of along with that, how is AFib related to stroke specifically? So atrial fibrillation dramatically increases the risk of stroke. And depending on how many risk factors that you have, that increase can change. So for instance, if I'm a 65-year-old woman with high blood pressure, my stroke risk with atrial fibrillation is probably a little over 3% per year. And again, that kind of helps to take some of the fear out of atrial fibrillation too, understanding that, yes, it does increase the risk of stroke, but you know, maybe it's 3 3.5% per year. Now, if I'm a male and I'm 75 and I have diabetes and I have heart disease and I've had a prior stroke, so I've got a whole basket of other risk factors, then maybe the stroke risk is more about 10% per year. So the mainstay of atrial fibrillation therapy is making sure we prevent stroke. These numbers I'm quoting are if a patient is not on any sort of lead thinner. Once they are on correct medications to prevent stroke, the risk dramatically falls to less than 1%. An AFib diagnosis for patients uh, can kind of be overwhelming and downright scary if they're not really educated about it. So how, as a cardiology provider, do you take the fear out of that AFib diagnosis for patients? I think we always try to fight fear with education and knowledge things like this, uh, but, you know, probably more importantly, sitting down with your healthcare provider and understand what is atrial fibrillation, what are we doing to prevent stroke, also understanding why do I take medications, what are my options, so really try to fight that fear with more knowledge, more understanding. Knowledge is power, right? Yeah. What can a patient with AFib expect as far as treatment options? So there's actually a really broad range of treatment options. So like we touched on earlier, uh, it is important for a patient to be on uh, a 
what's known in the community as a blood thinner or an anticoagulant. So medications like Eliquis or Xeralto or Coumadin to protect them from stroke. But then we'll talk about, you know, how do you treat the rhythm itself? And really it breaks down to two different categories. So atrial fibrillation is treated with either rate control or rhythm control. Rate control means you're taking a fast heart rhythm and you're trying to slow it down. So we use two main classes of medications. One are called beta blockers, things like metoprolol, carvedilol, basically anything that ends in olol, uh, are in this class of drugs that slow down the heart rate. And then a cousin class called calcium channel blockers, like diltiazem, verapamil, cardizem, these also help to slow the heart rate down. So one way to manage AFib is to control that heart rate, keep it low. And then the other arm is rhythm control. And that's how we try to keep people out of atrial fibrillation. Sometimes we use medications to try to keep that heart rhythm, um, try to keep the heart rhythm in sinus. And those are called, fancy word, antiarrhythmics, right? Uh, You may recognize the names of amiodarone or flecainide or propafenone. There are a lot of different antiarrhythmics out there. Um, But that doesn't always work, and sometimes the rhythm persists. So there are times that your healthcare provider may talk to you about something called a cardioversion. A cardioversion is when we bring you into the hospital and we sedate you and we deliver an electrical shock to the heart. Some people think that's very scary, right, because we see it on TV. And that's usually an emergency situation, and the patient gets a shock to their heart. This is done under a very controlled setting. Um, Generally, you're sedated, deliver the shock, and you're home within an hour or so. And think about it like rebooting your computer, right? So your computer's on the fritz. It's not quite working right, and you press the restart button. That's very similar to what a cardioversion is. It doesn't change anything structurally within the heart, but it can flip the rhythm to help patients feel much better. It just kind of gets all those chambers kind of synced back up so they're all flowing the way they're supposed to. Exactly. So if the electricity is coming from the proper area of the heart, you'll get a nice strong beat from the upper chambers and a nice strong beat from the lower chambers. Gotcha. So just kind of like a hard reset of the most, one of the most important organs of your body. That's cool. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Yes. Awesome. Uh, And then another option, if you're on that rhythm control strategy, is something called catheter ablation. Now, this is done at some of the larger facilities uh, in the city. And catheter ablation has become much better and easier and faster over the past, uh, past decades. It is a procedure. It's not a surgery um, where an electrical doctor will go into the veins in the leg, bring catheters up, and map out where this atrial fibrillation is coming from. Once it is mapped, you can ablate, which is essentially burn or cauterize these areas that cause the atrial fibrillation, and that creates scar to try to terminate the arrhythmia. Will that cure the AFib, that cauterizing of it? I love that you asked that question. I have heard it in the community before where atrial fibrillation ablation is marketed as a curative procedure. I do not agree. So once you have atrial fibrillation, you always will be at risk for stroke and you'll always be at risk for reoccurrence. Atrial fibrillation ablation can help for the arrhythmia to, you know, terminate for a year, two years, sometimes 
much longer than that. But really, it should be used as an adjunct to other therapies to suppress the AFib in patients who are highly symptomatic or who have developed complications from the arrhythmia. I don't think it's fair to our patients to call it a curative procedure because the recurrence rate uh, after ablation is, you know, quoted differently in different studies, but could be as high as 50% one to two years post-ablation, depending on the patient's um, profile. So along with that ablation therapy, if it's supplemented with other types of therapies, is the uh, recurrence rate lower than in those patients? It can be. It can be. So sometimes we'll use the antiarrhythmic drugs in addition to ablation to control the atrial fibrillation. Lifestyle changes after ablation can actually contribute more than, than we probably discuss. Caffeine intake, does that impact atrial fibrillation at all? Can, is that a risk factor for it, somebody that's taking in a lot of caffeine? That's a really interesting question, and the answer to that has changed throughout my career. So when I started practicing 17 years ago or so, uh, we were telling patients that caffeine has an impact on AFib, but more recent data suggests that caffeine from sources like coffee in you know low to moderate amounts are okay. And I say are okay in these clinical trials. We didn't see it increase the risk of AFib. But if as a patient, if you drink coffee and you're having palpitations and you're having AFib, then absolutely I would avoid it. So small to moderate amounts of caffeine are probably okay. Where I do see um, a difference is in energy drinks. The first time I saw atrial fibrillation in a 20-year-old was in a truck driver that was drinking three monsters per day. And sure enough, he came into my clinic in atrial fibrillation. Really rare to see AFib in your 20s, so obviously a notable event uh, for me. So if you're drinking energy drinks, I would strongly encourage you to um, try to cut that out, not only from an AFib perspective, but I think just in general in regards to high blood pressure and overall medical health, I just don't see the advantage of it. Is it the high dosage of caffeine in those energy drinks, or are there other ingredients in it too that kind of impact that atrial fibrillation? I don't know, but I theorize it's the other ingredients because you don't see it as much in the other sources of caffeine. So that would lead me to believe that it's probably a combination of these ingredients. I know they vary from brand to brand, and I certainly don't want to single any particular brand out. But I think when you get all of that together, your risk of having heart arrhythmias and high blood pressure is just higher. A perfect storm in the worst way, right? Yes. Once a patient has been diagnosed with AFib, what are some lifestyle changes that you would recommend people make that would help improve their situation there with AFib? So there, there is a lot of evidence that exercise helps reduce the risk of AFib and becoming more active. So whatever that is to you. So if, um, you know, you've been kind of a couch potato, just starting even a small program um, several times per week can help to reduce how much AFib you will have. Losing weight, you know, unpopular topic, uh, but also shows um, that people who lose a significant amount of weight will have less AFib. 
Another unpopular topic is decrease in alcohol intake. Uh, you know, it's it's true, though, even as much as one drink per day really does increase the risk of atrial fibrillation before diagnosis, after diagnosis. So that works in, in both categories. If you have sleep apnea, really working towards that. Wear your CPAP. Uh, talk to your medical provider about, you know, other options if the CPAP doesn't work well for you. But correction of those things um, will result in less atrial fibrillation and, you know, hopefully less symptoms overall. Gotcha. So those things will not only help your atrial fibrillation, but it sounds like all the things you just listed will help your overall health as well. Right. And I can't really think of a downside to implementing most of those. All great positive changes that'll help your heart and the rest of you feel a lot better. So thank you, Kristen, for joining us today. Thank you so much.